0: January 25th, 2012 in Radhadesh, Belgium, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Chapter 9, The Supreme Character of Jada Bharat. We're reading 7 through 10. So just a little background again on text 7. So Bharat Maharaj, he became a deer, then the deer became a brahmana called Jada Bharat. Jada means like a stone. And as Jedibart, he was one of twins. He had a twin sister. And he and his twin sister were the children of a Brahmana's younger wife. So the Brahmana had two wives. And the older wife had, I think, eight or nine sons. The younger wife had a, son and a twin son and daughter. And as we heard the last verse on Monday, the Brahman died. The father died. Okay, that's who we are right now. So text 7 Ata yari yashi dvij sati jatam maitunam sapatnya upanyasya sayam anu staya patilokam agat word for word ata, ata. thereafter yaviyasi the youngest dwijasati wife of the brahmana Swagarbha jatam Born of her womb, Maitunam, the twins, Sapatnyai, unto the co wife, Upanyasya, entrusting, Swayam, personally, Anusthamstaya, by following her husband, Patilokam, the planet called Patiloka, a gut went to so there's a husband planet <laughs> right, translation thereafter the Brahmin's younger wife after entrusting her twin children the boy and girl to the elder wife departed for Patiloka voluntarily dying with her husband okay so what's Jed Bharat's position right now who's taking care of him his stepmother and his stepbrothers stepmother and stepbrothers so it sounds like a, an introduction to a lot of the fairy tales of the world, right? <laughs> we're well, left under the care of the stepmother and stepbrothers. <laughs> we, did, we did, Bhakti Markswami did a drama, maybe they're still doing it, on the three lives of Bharat Maharaj, and I played the stepmother. So I was, I was actually, what we're going to read today, I was doing on stage <laughs> not that long ago. Okay, text eight. After the father died, the nine, yeah, nine brothers. The nine stepbrothers of Jed Barrett, who considered Jed Barrett dull and brainless, abandoned the father's attempt to give Jed Bart a complete education. So remember, the father was trying. You remember that? He was trying, and what was his son doing? He was just doing everything backwards, incomplete or backwards. But the father just didn't give up. He died trying. <laughs> Uh, but the brothers gave up. The stepbrothers of Juddhbarat were learned in the three Vedas—the Rig Veda, Samaveda, and Yajurveda. So these were these were real Brahmanas, which very much encouraged fruit of activity. The nine brothers were not at all spiritually enlightened in devotional service to the Lord. Consequently, they could not understand the highly exalted position of Jedha Bharata. So they didn't appreciate him. They just thought he was useless. They thought he was blind, deaf, dumb, uh, mentally deficient. He wasn't good for anything. Why why bother to educate him? They, they weren't able to see his higher quality. Okay, going on to 9 and 10. Degraded men are actually no better than animals. The only difference is that animals have four legs and such men have only two. These two-legged animalistic men used to call Jadabharata mad, dull, deaf, and dumb, they mistreated him, and Jed brought it to behave for them like a madman who was deaf, blind, or dull. He did not protest or try to convince them that he was not so. So, if someone comes to us and says, "You're a fool," I work very hard to convince them that I'm not. <laughs> right? If someone tries to, if someone tells me that I'm. Uh, Crazy. I try very hard to convince them that I'm sane. We'll endeavor very much to keep up our persona in the world. And Jed Bart actually was a great personality. He was a greater personality than his brothers. But he made no, okay, you want to call me deaf, dumb, madman, fine. Whatever you want to call me. If others wanted him to do something, he acted according to their desires. Whatever food he could acquire by begging or by wages, and whatever came of its own accord, be it a small quantity, palatable, stale, or tasteless, he would accept and eat. So, you know, we look for the best, picking out the paneer from the sub-G. We don't care that the people in the back of the queue don't get any. And we'll <laughs> complain if things are not quite to our liking. Okay, but whatever... So he, begging, wages, or whatever came of its own accord. He never ate anything for sense gratification because he was already liberated from the bodily conception which induces one to accept palatable or unpalatable food. He was full in the transcendental consciousness of devotional service and therefore he was unaffected by the dualities arising from the bodily conception. Actually, his body was as strong as a bull's and his limbs were very muscular he didn't care for winter or summer, wind or rain, and he never covered his body at any time. So he didn't make an attempt to dress for the weather. He lay on the ground. So maybe we'll sleep on the floor, but even people who sleep on the floor, they usually have a mat. But he slept. Nice to see you outside of my poor. He slept directly on the ground. And never smeared oil on his body or took a bath. So in those days, instead of using soap, they used oil. Actually, soap is made mostly of oil. If you look at the ingredients of soap, it's primarily oil. That's Something's been added, and it's boiled so it becomes solid. But what they would do instead is they would massage their body with oil to loosen up the dirt, and then they would bath. Uh, there were a number of places, the says, bathing means bathing with oil. So he wouldn't massage his body with oil. and He lay on the ground and never smeared oil on his body or took a bath. Because his body was dirty, his spiritual effulgence and knowledge were covered, just as the splendor of a valuable gem is covered by dirt. He only wore a dirty loincloth and his sacred thread, which was blackish. <laughs> Understanding that he was born in a Brahmana family, because he had the black thread... <laughs> People would call him a Brahma, Bandhu, and other names. Being thus insulted and neglected by materialistic people, he wandered here and there. Purport. Shilinirottamadasdakur has sung, Deha Smriti Nahi Yara. Deha Smriti. What would that mean? Deha means the body. Smriti is knowledge. To have any knowledge of remembrance of the body. Samsara Bandana kahantara. Tara? Tada is to be freed from samsara bandhana the, the bounds of samsara. One who has no desire to maintain the body or who is not anxious to keep the body in order and who is satisfied in any condition must be either mad or liberated. I think, you know, sometimes we read, at least for me, I read these descriptions and I say, is that what I have to do to be Krishna conscious? <laughs> I remember when I was first first reading in the fourth canto, about the Manapras order. How old was I? 20, 21 or something like that. And when, it, when Prabhupada first translated it, and I went to Rupanuga, who was our GBC, I said, am I going to have to do all that? He said, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> so one who has no desire to maintain the body or who is not anxious to keep the body in order and who is satisfied in any condition must be either mad or liberated. Actually, Bharat Maharaj in his birth as Judd Bharat was completely liberated from material dualities. He was a Paramahamsa and therefore did not care for bodily comfort. So he was above duality. Well, from an external position, the brothers were much more spiritually advanced people than Jed Bharat. I mean, if we met them, right, if we met one of Judd Bharat's brothers and we met Judd Bharat, who would we say was the better devotee? Right? The, the brothers were learned in the Vedas. I mean, they were real brahmanas, and this was another age. I'm sure they were expert at chanting all the mantras and all the rituals. I'm sure they could expound on the scriptures. They were very clean. And Judd Bharata is just he's eating old, rotten food and lying on the ground. He doesn't even take a bath. He doesn't, you know, doesn't have any proper behavior. He seems like he's just out of order. And this is confusing. I, later on, one of my favorite verses at, near the end of this pastime when Maharaj Rahugana actually realizes who Jed Barda is and he said, I offer my obeisances to liberated souls who may be walking as madmen or as children or in some kind of covered form that may not be recognizable externally. Of course, Srila Prabhupada has really demonstrated to the world that saintly persons don't necessarily come in exactly the package that you expect, that they can come in, in any bodily form, from any culture, from any background. But this is the tendency to look for something external, to look for something that fits your concept you know, so who is the advanced person, Jad Bharat or the brothers? I mean, how do we tell? What is the criteria for being an advanced devotee? It's a rather useful question to ask, isn't it? First of all, it's useful for me. I mean, I want to know if I'm making any progress. We've been talking about, we talk about this frequently, that the ultimate test of whether or not Krishna is Krishna consciousness is real is kartam susukamkartamaviyam. Direct experience that Krishna consciousness is real. Direct experience of happiness. Direct experience of Krishna. we're, We're reading this interview Satyuraj Prabhu had with Ayindra. And after he was in the temple for, I don't know, a few weeks, he actually saw Krishna, at least that's his claim. He saw Krishna, heard him playing his flute. He said, okay, well, after that, I knew Krishna consciousness was real. You know, Sacharashwur said, Well, but most people don't see Krishna in here and playing his flute after a few weeks in the Krishna consciousness movement. And so what's what's your evidence procedure? How do you know for yourself that you're making advancement? And Prabhupada says we're the ones who have to judge for ourselves. It's not like you can ask somebody else, Oh, my dear Prabhu, am I making advancement? Prabhupada says it's like asking someone else whether or not you've eaten. You know, have I eaten? Or could you imagine asking someone else if you're comfortable? You know, excuse me, am I warm enough? <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's an absurd question. So just like one knows if one's eaten, one should know if one's making advancement. But one has to know the criteria for advancement. And one should also be able to judge others. Not to be, I, I think um, you were asking this question the other day about being judgmental. Not so I can be, not so we can have some sort of a hierarchical status. Not so we can create some sort of, okay, these are the advanced devotees, these are the not advanced devotees, the advanced devotees get the thicker cushions and the not so advanced devotees, they get the thinner cushions and the really unadvanced devotees, they get to sit on the bare floor. You know, or not so we can have exactly a wick order passing around you know everybody has to wear a little sign so we rate everybody in the temple you know what number are you and you have to go around the temple room and you pass the ghee wick around according to the numbers on everybody's shoulders so it's not that's not our purpose for understanding who's advanced and who's not advanced or not to give you know the more advanced persons the greater perks uh, but because we're enjoying that we have to associate according to people's levels that our kind of association with others has to be different according to that person's level of advancement, right? Isn't that the instructions of Rupa Goswami? We're told that those who are at a lower level than ourselves, we help them. Those who are equal, we make friendship with them. Those who are higher, we serve them. Of course, we should be friendly with everyone. One devotee was trying to convince me that we should only be friendly with equals. (laughs) I know we should be friendly with everyone, but as far as intimate... (laughs) really spent a long time trying to convince me of this. Unfortunately for him, I wasn't convinced. So, but the idea is that still one has different levels of, and different kinds of relationship, a different kind of relationship with different persons. And especially one who we're going to surrender to, to take instructions for them. You know, we're enjoined in the Shastra that before accepting a guru, one should examine that guru for a minimum of one year. And that examination should be done personally. It's not, you don't, uh, what do you call that? You don't uh, subcontract it out to somebody else. (laughs) One one should do it oneself. If you subcontract it out, you have to take responsibility for that. So what are you going to look for? You know, when you're looking for someone to whom to surrender, what are you going to look for? That they have a big beard, you know, flowing silk clothes, that they speak in a soft, slow voice about love. I mean, what is what's the criteria? How do you know who's a saintly person? I mean, it's sort of important information to know. And, and Arjuna was concerned about this question. He asked the question twice in the Bhagavad Gita. Where did he ask the question? Second chapter. And again? Where else again? Did Arjuna ask the question? Fourteenth chapter. And Krishna also gives a list where else he gives he gives it all over the Bhagavad Gita, but he gives a concentrated list also where else the symptoms of a devotee. Hmm? Well, it's all over, but a particular list where he goes, twelfth chapter. So particularly you're going to find the list, the second 12th and 14th, although the verses are all over the Bhagavad Gita. And there are also many, many places in the Bhagavatam. So I thought we'd look particularly at the Bhagavad Gita, although we're also looking to some extent here at the Bhagavatam, and look at what are the symptoms and how do you do it? Because Arjuna also asked that question, especially in the 14th chapter. What are the symptoms and how do you acquire those symptoms? And then we're going to finally look, because these descriptions, at least to me, are very frightening, at how do we demonstrate it? You know, are, do we all? Is this the goal of the Hare Krishna movement that all of us stop bathing, eat just whatever food is given, even if it's worm-eaten and rotten, and lie on the ground, and you know, only wear underwear? And is that is that supposed to be the? Is that what we're supposed to be looking for as our external manifestation? of transcendence. So I'm going to look at different manifestations of that. Okay, what are the symptoms? I I don't at all pretend that in the amount of time we have that I'm looking at all of them. So if at the end there's some symptom that you are really inspired about that I haven't mentioned, you can add it and we'll meditate on that. So I was thinking particularly in regard to this Leela, that one symptom is above the Vedas. Right? And we have... I have a Bhagavad Gita, how oh, nice. Okay. I know Jai Swami is trying to memorize, maybe he already has every verse in the Bhagavad Gita, but Jai, okay. uh, this verse is particularly pertinent to today's verse. Trigunya vishaya veda, nis trigunya bhavarjuna. Near Dvandvo, Satvasto near Yogak, Shema Atmavan. The Vedas deal mainly with the three subjects of the three modes of material nature. O Arjuna, become transcendental to these three modes, be free from all dualities and from all anxieties for gain and safety, and be established in the self. So, one symptom of a self realized soul, a liberated soul, a pure devotee of the Lord is that they're above the ritualistic aspects of the Vedas. They're not interested in them. Krishna also, of course, explains this in the sixth chapter when he talks about a child born in a family of transcendentalists, the child who had a fall down after great practice of yoga, which, of course, applies to Buddha. And he's, always, he's not interested in the ritualistic formulas of the Vedas. We actually see this in most of the children born in the Hare Krishna movement. That they're not so interested in ritualistic formulas. But particularly, the part of that verse that I, I want to focus on is Nir Yoga Kshema Atmavan. Nir Yoga Kshema, for maintenance and for safety. Atmavan, established in the self. So, one symptom of advancement is a lack of worry about maintenance and protection. So if we're going around wondering about how am I going to make money, how am I going to make money, how am I going to be protected, am I going to have enough money in my old age, who's going to take care of me, I'm working for ISKCON, is ISKCON going to take care of me, maybe there will be a new town president and he'll throw me out. You know, if if those are our worries, you know, what am I going to do when I get old? You know, I never got married. I never had any kids. Who's going to take care of me? And as soon as I I finish being able to work, they're probably going to throw me out on the street. And maybe if I have some doubt about something in Krishna consciousness, if I express it, they'll call me a heretic. And then they'll throw me out on the street for that. I better be really careful what I say. You know, I better make sure I keep my health up so I can work hard. And all these anxieties for gain and safety. You know, or what about the government? Maybe the government's going to fail, and the euro's going down. And what am I going to do? All my money's going to be worthless. You know, I have ten thousand euros in the bank, but pretty soon it's going to be worth only one that euro or nothing. And you know, so those are we, that's something we can look at as a symptom. What am I worried about gain and safety? Are those my concerns? Do I have anxieties about them? Do I plan my life? To try to deal with these anxieties for gain and safety. Am I thinking, okay, I've got to do this thing to earn money and I got this thing to protect my money? I was just, uh, oh, I know where I was reading it. I was reading it in the seventh canto where Prahlad Maharaj, she's the python man. And Prabhupada says something so wonderful in that purport. He said, when you have money, you're afraid of yourself. You're thinking, did I lock up my money? <laughs> Did I lock the door? Did I keep it in a safe place? Did I invest it properly? You you don't even trust yourself. What to speak of your relatives? You know, maybe my relatives will not take care of me when I'm old so they can get my money. <laughs> right? Or maybe the government will steal it. So what is the how does one become free from all anxieties for gain and safety? So it's a nice, Narayani pointed this out to me. There's a nice link between Bhagavad Gita 245, Nir Yoga Kshema Atmavan, and Bhagavad Gita, what? Yoga Kshema. Yes, Yoga Kshema which is what verse? 922. So why are you near yoga kshema? Why do you not have any anxieties for gain and safety? Because yoga kshema, vaham yaham. Krishna says, I'm taking care of that. So we were all children, and if any of you had highly dysfunctional families, this wouldn't apply to you. But for most of us in, in normal families, I don't know, as time goes on, that may not be most of us anymore. As Kali Yuga progresses, we're not going to be able to give functional family examples in Bhagavatam class anymore. <laughs> but you know, for those of us, I'm assuming it's the majority, who had functional families, we didn't worry about maintenance and protection, did we, when we were children? We just didn't worry about it at all. If I needed something, my parents bought it for me. You know, I, I didn't worry about how they were investing their money. I didn't worry about whether or not I was going to be taken care of. I didn't think maybe my parents won't feed me today. <laughs> you know maybe they won't give me any clothes. So I had that, that trust. Huh? So that's the trust the devotee has in Krishna. and by the way, one reason this is a real side topic, but one reason to have a sane and stable social atmosphere, a reason we care about Varnashram is it makes it so much easier to surrender to Krishna. You know, there was, we were looking at uh, Eric Erickson's theories of identity as part of our sociology course, and he talks about how when you're a little baby, what you learn is trust and security. Now, that's what you're learning as a, as a newborn baby. But if when you're a newborn baby, you don't learn trust and security, then when someone says, you know, Krishna's the supreme father, you say, well, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> right prabhu says that you chant like a child calling for the mother you know but if you had an abusive mother or a negligent mother that you, you can doesn't make any sense to you you know i wouldn't want to call for my mother kind of thing uh, so this is as society becomes degraded uh, these these prayers of bhakti janaka janani Daita tanai prabhu guru patitu sarvamoy doesn't make any sense to people anymore they say, "Why would I want to see you as my father, my mother, my lover, my husband, my guru my friend they 've all cheated me you know so if god 's like that he 's another cheater it 's very unfortunate anyway it 's a very side topic, but this idea this sort of dependence, the kind of dependence the traditional wife had on the good husband, both of whom are in scarce or scarce commodities but anyway, another difficult example. But, you know, the, the traditional wife, again, she knew my husband's going to take care of me. I don't have to worry about maintenance and safety. The children knew my parents are going to take care of me. The citizens in a good government, they knew the government's going to take care of me. So like that, we know Krishna's going to take care of me. We just don't worry about it. Or if you work for a good company, the company's going to take care of you. And you don't worry about it. You just focus on the, what, your job. You know, when you're a child, you just focus on getting your education or playing with your toys. You, know, you just focus on your own business, your own duty. You can say, "Well, what of us about us who have the duty to maintain and protect?" Oh, I also read such a lovely purport this morning about the description of Maharaj Parriket when he was born, and Prabhupada described the Ishwar above of the Ksatriya as taking pleasure in giving protection. When we hear Ishwar above, we think, oh, it means arrogance. No, it means being a protector. So Krishna as the supreme Ishwar, Ishwar Parnamakrishna, Krishna, he takes pleasure in protecting his subjects. He actually enjoys doing that, gives him happiness. Just like any of you are husbands, you enjoy protecting your wife and children. If we're parents, we enjoy protecting our children. If you're a teacher, you enjoy taking care of your students. There's pleasurable, okay, what do I have to put together so that they'll get the best education, right? And putting together the lesson plans and thinking, what's really going to benefit my students? Or Shamananda, I'm sure he enjoys making sure everything's nice, that the rooms are heated and that they're cleaned, and that's pleasure. So the devotee is understanding that one way I please Krishna is I allow him to maintain and protect me. He's already doing it. But I, I, I voluntarily cooperate with that. So that's how we get free from anxieties for gain and safety. Like you see Jed Bart, He's free from anxieties for gain and safety. He knows Krishna's taking care of me. This also means having a trust that however Krishna takes care of me is good. Not, I trust that Krishna is going, Okay, Krishna, I trust you're going to take care of me in my way. Let me tell you how you should take care of me. Here's my list. You take, I need this, and I need this, and I want this, and and it's got to be done this way. It's got to be done at this time, by this person. Otherwise, I reject you as my caretaker, and I'm going to try to take care of myself. Now, part of seeing Krishna as the maintainer and protector is that I trust that he knows more than I do. I know that's a big leap for most of us, but somehow or other, to really, you know, that the person who can move the planets around is probably a little bit more intelligent and capable than I am. Possibly. You know, at least, and theoretically, provisionally, that maybe he knows what he's doing. And so I let him take care of me as he wants. As he wants. And I trust that whatever he does is good for me. As Prophet says in the Purport to 1515, 15, God is all good, God is all merciful. So that means even if I become poverty-stricken, and I'm I'm lying on the street and nobody loves me anymore. That that's Krishna's way of maintaining me and protecting me. And this was the mood you see of Judd Bard. Whatever came, that was that was good. Sometimes very tasty things came. That's good. Sometimes not tasty things came. That's good. Sometimes he got wages. That's good. Sometimes he had to beg. That was good. Sometimes he got neither wages nor begging, and whatever came, and that was good. So this is also how one gets free of all anxieties for gain or safety. That Krishna is taking care of me, and whatever he does for me is good. It's perfect. It's the perfect kind of care, and I'm always going to be sheltered. I don't have to worry about it. I might have to worry about taking care of others as part of my service, but I'm not in the mood, and this is the next point, of being the doer. So another symptom of advancement is I don't think that I'm the doer. And I'm not going to, I can't quote all the verses, but for those of you who are taking notes and want to look this up, it's all over the place, but some I particularly found out was 5.8 to 9, 5.13, 5.14, 13.30, and also particularly 18.16, where Krishna says, don't think you're the only doer. You that, that that what's happening is not being done by me. It's just being done by the modes of nature. It's just being done by the body. I'm not doing it. I'm the witness. I'm the witness. Something like a dream. You're not really doing the things in a dream. You're watching them in the platform of the mind. And you may think, I'm running, I'm jumping, I'm eating, I'm dancing in your dream, but actually you're not doing any of those things. You're lying in your bed. Or a very easy modern example is a movie. So if you're watching a movie, you feel like, and actually they've had research that shows that when you're reading a book or watching a movie, you get brain activity as if you were actually doing the things you're watching or reading about. So when the character's running, the parts of the brain that controls your running muscles get activated as if you were running also. You know, the emotions of the characters that you read about or hear about someone's telling you a story, that we actually live the story subtly as we hear it, which gives you a little idea of the power of stories, but that's another discussion. So, as I'm reading the book or listening to the story or watching the movie, it seems as if I'm doing those things. I physiologically and psychologically and emotionally experience as if I'm the one jumping out of the window you know, and grabbing onto the bottom of the helicopter as I jump out the window. And I feel like a great hero. (laughs) But actually, I'm not doing that. I'm just sitting in the movie theater or on my couch with my wall-sized screen. You know, just, I'm observing. I'm just the witness. And, you know, they're making these movies better and better and better with 3D and I've read that in some theaters they have bass speakers under the seats that can even move the seats you know when something happens like that in the movie and pretty soon they're going to put smells into the theater and when the guy jumps in the water they'll have sprinklers on the ceiling <laughs> you know so they're making it more they're making the illusion tighter and tighter but none of them have been able to compete with the master of illusion who makes it so tight that we actually think yes I'm I'm sitting here I'm speaking, I'm eating, I'm talking, I'm thinking, I'm driving a car, when we're just the witness. So one sign of advancement is this detachment. I was just reading an essay by Sachin Nandan where he was talking about watching the monkeys in Radhakund tear everything up. He was watching through a glass. And he said, just like that, you watch the mind and you know it's not me. Right, so how do you do that? How do we come to see I'm not the doer? Well, Krishna explains in 1814, we know that I'm just one of the five factors of action. Exactly like a movie. What's creating the movie? Well, there was the director and the writer, right? The producer, the actors. There's the lights going on the screen. There's the person who created the movie theater. And then there's also me who wanted to see the movie, and paid my money to sit in the seat. But I'm not the only actor. <laughs> I'm not the only doer. And those other doers are much more important, aren't they? Like, I'd really like to see a, a 3D, eight-story high movie on the Mahabharat, but even though I'd really like to see it, because no director and actors have or done it, my I can't do it. So obviously I'm not the only doer. Just by my wanting to do something, it doesn't happen. All those other things have to be combined, right? Or if there's a power outage, then there's no movie at all. Never mind, you can have the camera, you can have the screen, you can have the actors, you can have the theater, you can have the audience, and as soon as the electricity is cut, the whole thing's done. So the ultimate actor is Krishna. There's Krishna, there's the modes of material nature, like the three lights on the screen, right? There's etc. there's the field, the screen, and the theater, there's the endeavor, and that's, that's actually what's going on, to see the world as it is. Maya means that which it's not, and Krishna means to see what it is. So to develop some, again, some devotional gain, some devotional knowledge, especially from the last six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, and from the description that Jed Bharat is about to give Maharaj Rahugana, coming up, just coming up, coming attractions in the Bhagavatam, of the world as a forest of material enjoyment. And to really seem like that, I was talking to one of our devotees who was a sannyasi, GBC guru, and who then left Krishna consciousness and has now come back, and he told me, He said, when I left Krishna consciousness, I was living the fifth canto. He said, I didn't believe it when I read it, but now I believe it. (laughs) So to see the world like that for what it is. And another symptom of advancement is not working for fruitive results. Again, this is described in many places. We could look at Bhagavad Gita 6.4. Not trying to achieve a fruit. or This is also, of course, explained in the 12th chapter, karma palatyaga. What is the fruit of our actions that we're looking for? The fruit is heaven. Either like these brothers, they wanted to leave their body and go to heaven, or like the parents. Of course, they went to this really funny heaven of Patiloka. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what happens there. Uh, But, you know, to go to a particular heavenly place after leaving this body, that's most religionists are aiming to go there, or to have heaven on earth. You know, to be in a really nice place and have beautiful soft clothing and nice attractive soft furniture and palatable food and good friends, a congenial atmosphere and so forth and so on. And that's generally the fruit of what we're doing. If we think about why do I do what I do, it's generally because I want to enjoy. I want some fruit. So one sign of advancement is that that's no longer the motive for action. One is not looking for something on the gross or the subtle platform to give happiness to the mind and body. I'm no longer working so I can have a place to live. I'm not working so I can have nice food. I'm not working so everybody will like me. I'm not working so everybody will honor me. Uh, you know, I'm not working for any of those reasons. What am I working for then? So in 5.11, Krishna says to work only for purification. That's the mode of goodness. I'm working so I can become purified of my attachment. I'm doing my work so I can realize myself. I'm doing my work so I can become detached. And for Krishna's pleasure, as a sacrifice for Krishna, as a sacrifice for Krishna. So my motive, even higher than for purification is my motive is, I want Krishna to smile. I want Krishna to be happy. I want to please my beloved. And one who has that mentality, the symptoms are that the mind is conquered and one is no longer affected, like Judd Bart, by heating cold, honor, dishonor, happiness, and distress. Because that's not what you're working for. <laughs> if If I do or don't get something that I didn't care about, then it doesn't matter to me if I get it or not. Does that make any sense? Okay, so let's see. Whether or not somebody gives me, what could it be? Whether or not someone gives me a samosa today is irrelevant to me because I don't want one. I'm not working for one. I don't have that in my mentality. So if I get it or I don't get it, it's irrelevant. It's not what I'm working for. It's not, it's not my interest. So it's not that you have no interest. You do care whether or not you become purified. You do care whether or not Krishna is smiling. It's not that you don't care about anything. But you don't care about things for the body and mind. And you do that by substituting what you care about. Okay, other thing we see here with Jed Bart is he doesn't have a concept of friend or enemy. He doesn't see his brothers as his enemy. He's not trying to get back at them. He's not trying to prove anything to them. Or the people who insult him. You degraded son of a Brahmana. Okay. Whatever. You stupid, ignorant. Okay. Whatever you want to think of me, it's okay. He's not trying to get back at them. He's not saying, No, you're the one who's he doesn't do that. He doesn't he doesn't defend himself and he doesn't counterattack. He's just well wisher, the, the Python devotee also was saying like that. He said, I'm just the well-wisher of everyone. Everyone. So, of course, Krishna explains this very nicely in the sixth chapter, where he says the yogi sees pebbles, stone, and gold as the same, and higher than that is someone who can see the friend, the enemy, and the neutral, all with an equal mind. So that's very hard, isn't it? (laughs) It's really, really hard. If, If I think someone's insulting me or hurting me, to see them with the same mentality of well-wishing as I see the people who give me the samosas. (laughs) You know, it's it's really, really hard that those who give me the samosas and those who steal the samosas, I see equally. (laughs) That reminds me of a really funny story of how I was fasting for a codice and I had planned to break my fast I had been looking at that. Was really don't do a karmic like this. And I was looking at the breakfast time, and I was meditating. on when I was going to break my fast, and I had actually made a whole plate of, of stuff to break my fast, and I had I was staying in an ashram, so I, I wrapped it up in with tape and a big sign on it. This is Ormila's. Don't eat it. <laughs> and I put it in the general defodi refrigerator. <laughs> yes, you can understand what happened.
1: When I went to break my fast.
0: (laughs) And then I had to go, okay, friends, enemies, and neutral, all with an equal mind. Friends, enemies, and neutral, all with an equal mind. (laughs) It's hard. You know, the person who brings you the nice things, oh, you're my friend. And the person who takes it away. I was like, why would anybody take it away? Equal mind, equal mind. But why would they take it away? (laughs) Who took it? I'm going to find out who took it. <laughs> I did actually find out who took it. And I said, But why did you take it? He said, Well, we came back from the preaching program. We'd also gone to a preaching program. He said, Well, we all came back from the preaching program. It was 11.30 at night, and I was hungry, and, you know, I thought, Well, Fermila hasn't taken it by 11.30 at night. She probably doesn't want it. <laughs> that way, this is hard. How do you do this? How do you actually see the friends, enemies, and neutral with an equal mind? First of all, by seeing that Krishna's behind it. That no enemy can do anything to me unless it's Krishna's desire. Why did, it was Krishna who took away my breakfast. Why? To remind me that you're not supposed to be fasting on a meditating on your breakfast food. <laughs> you're supposed to be fasting on a meditating on Krishna. So it's Krishna who did that. You know, ultimately, that's Dharma the bull said, I don't want to name anybody. Why? Because ultimately, you've got to name Krishna. Mare Krishna Rakeke Rake Krishna Mareke. If anyone's done something to me, there's a famous story about Gorkhishwar Das Babaji that some local children were throwing stones at him. And he says, All right, Nandanandana, I know what you're doing. Stop it, or I'm going to tell Mother Yasoda on you. (laughs) So the mood of the devotee is like that. Whatever's happening to me, that is being done ultimately by krishna either in his response to my karma tatainu kampam or as krishna's loving reciprocation with me and i see that all living beings are ultimately souls just like me i have i have genuine compassion that everywhere is a soul vijavani sampane suni hastani vasupaki sapakich pandita samadarshina and everyone is just trying to, themselves, struggling. Prakriti, Stani, Karshani. They're struggling already, Karshati, with the mind and senses. How can I blame anybody else? Well, our time is escaping, and I don't even have time to go through all the rest of the symptoms I was going to look at. I'll look at one more. Uh, one is that one is undisturbed in the modes of material nature. So friends, enemies, neutral, heat and cold, that's external. Modes of material nature is something that's affecting me internally. So sometimes I'm really, you know, into liberation and purification. Sometimes I, I want the sweet ball and the honor. And sometimes I'm just sad and depressed and hopeless. Yeah. So these are just the workings of the modes of material nature. And one has to be above the modes of material nature. What does Krishna say is the cause of all our suffering and enjoyment? Karna guna sangasya. Because we've associated with the modes. To become undisturbed in the modes, as Krishna says in 256. And one of my favorite quotes is 14.22, where, where Krishna says, You don't hate illumination. Attachment or illusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear. To know that the modes alone are active and to be neutral. So, the way one becomes unaffected by the modes is to see it's the modes. It's the modes. It's a movie. It's a dream. It's not me. It's just the modes acting. It's just the mind. Sometimes the mind is going to feel peaceful and satisfied and desiring purification. Sometimes the mind is going to be hankering or lamenting for different things in the world. Oh, I wish I could get that pair of shoes. I wish I could get that position. I wish I could stay in that room. I wish this person would look at me and fall in love with me. I wish I would get this amount of money. I wish I would get this. If only I would get this. If only I would get get that. And sometimes the mind is sad. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Life is miserable. I'm never going to be healthy. I'm never going to have any money. I'm never going to be Krishna conscious. You know, whatever. (laughs) I'm never going to get all these symptoms of Jadbar here in these verse. So the, the, the mind goes through these different, and it's just the modes. Just say, okay, that's the mode of goodness. That's interesting. Look at Krishna's mode of goodness acting. How wonderful Krishna is. Look at Krishna's mode of passion acting. Wow, how incredible Krishna is. What an amazing movie producer he is. Look at that mode of ignorance. Wow, isn't that interesting? It has nothing to do with me. And how does one come to that platform? So one can have this detachment if one does service when one wants purification, when one wants name and fame and material sense objects, when one wants to just lay down and die because it's all hopeless. You know, that in, in all of those situations, you go on serving. You go on serving. You go on serving. You go on serving. You, know, you chant your rounds every day. You read Prabhupada's books every day. You do some service every day. Without, without, bre- you don't take a break. You don't say, well, now I want money, let me take a break. Oh, now I'm depressed, let me take a break. Oh, now I'm illuminated, let me take a break. But that you go on serving. And the last thing we'll look at just quickly is, all right, let's say that I, that I do these things and I'm actually become advanced, so how do I live? Do I live like Jad Bharat? So there are examples of persons who live like this. Of course, Jad Bharat himself, his father, Dev, at the end of his life, uh, the Pandavas at the end of their life. So we're reading this right now in the first canto about how when Krishna leaves the planet, that first Yudhisthira, then his four brothers, then Draupadi and Subhadra, they all they leave their royal clothes, they put on torn clothing. They, they live just exactly like this. They travel anywhere, people are insulting them, and they don't respond. They just stay within themselves. They find happiness in the self. A nice Krishna talks about atma ratir and atmatushtaha. They're finding happiness in the self. So they're not interacting with the outside world. But then, of course, we have the majority of the examples are of those who do act in the world. As Krishna says, one who works in devotion, who's a pure soul, who controls his mind and senses, is dear to everyone and everyone is dear to him. Although always working, such a man is never entangled. And we see this in the lives of the six Goswamis of Vrindavan. They never lived, you know, maybe like madmen in a sense, but not really. They were building temples. Right? They were writing books. And everybody in Vrindavan used to go and ask their advice. As learned sadhus, we see, of course, directly, Srila Bhakti Bhaktisiddhanta, who lived as very sober persons in the world. They weren't externally appearing like this, but still they had all these qualities of a saintly person. So in, in discriminating on other saintliness and our own advancement, it's not a question of, do I sleep on the ground in the rain and the cold? And that can't be imitated anyway. It's foolish to imitate it; you'll just become ill. But that's not what we're looking for, because somebody, like it says here, Prabhupada says you might just be crazy. You know, that's not what we're looking for. What we're looking are these for these other signs of advancement. As I said, I've only mentioned a, a very, very few of them. We could look at the twenty-six qualities of a devotee. We could look at all of the descriptions in the Bhagavad Gita, and I hope I haven't missed anybody's like really favorite symptom. But we should be familiar with these symptoms. In education, they say that assessment drives instruction. However you're going to be tested, that determines what you're actually going to learn. Just like in our courses here, there's no assessment based on whether or not students prepare for classes. So a lot of the students don't prepare for classes because they think, why should I bother? I'm not going to be assessed on that anyway. Right? And that they say in management that people only do what's measured. So either measurement by others or self-measurement. So we should be knowing the criteria by which we're going to be assessed. We should know how to assess myself. Do I assess myself by how many times I've waved incense in the air? Is that a measurement of my advancement? Or do I assess myself according to the Shastra? And how do I discriminate as far as association? So we should know these, these assessments, and then we should know how to achieve them. In education also, you have an objective, what you want people to achieve, and then you have combined with that a learning activity. That's how you prepare a lesson. You first decide, what do I want my students to demonstrate by the end of the lesson? What do I want them to be able to do or to know or to be? And then you get a learning activity that will produce that. You have have a goal in mind. So also we should know, what's my goal? What, what kind of qualities and behavior do I want to achieve? And then do the specific things to achieve them. So questions, comments? We just have a few minutes, sorry. Corrections, additions. Other lists of qualities that I missed. Yes. Mm. I so said we should be friendly to everybody. Maybe well, with equals, we have a kind of intimate friendship. With, if you have an intimate friendship with people who are functioning below you, it, it won't work very well. They'll, they'll misunderstand you and they'll, they'll criticize you. Yes, this is very nicely explained in Narada Muni's instructions to Dhruva Maharaj, where he says that if you want to conquer all the miseries of the material world, then you you show kindness to those who are lesser than you, you make friendship with equals, and you serve those who are higher than you. And Prabhupada says, generally, if someone's lesser than us, we try to exploit them. Oh, great, somebody's lesser than me. Let me use them in some way. If someone's equal, you brag you try to push them down. And if they're higher, you envy them. And you criticize them, to try, again, to try to pull them down. But what particularly interests me about that verse in purport is that Nardamuni says that if you just do that, you'll be free from all material miseries. So that's another class. It's not really how to do that, how to associate, how to become basically free from envy. But definitely, unquestionably, how we treat others is a prime factor in, the, in whether or not we will make advancement, and it's a prime symptom of having made advancement. So you'll find, uh, like Bhakti Nautakura says, Namruchi and Jivadoya. A taste for the name and kindness to all living entities. So those are, that's both the means of advancing and the symptom of advancement. There's no way, impossible, that one is going to make any spiritual advancement if you're not kind to other living entities. And that shouldn't stop just at what you eat. It's not that we're only kind, you know, that we love the cows and that's all. And we don't love, you know, we're not nice to our wife. (laughs) You know, I pet the cow and I beat my wife. So that's, That that won't work. It won't work, you know. I take the little bug and put it outside so we can get something to eat, and then I insult the other Vaishnavas. You know, it won't make it. So we should be as nice to the other devotees as we are to the little bugs in our room. At least that nice. You know, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, some students were giving a presentation... And like four students were at the front of the room. And then one of the women said, oh, a spider. She stamps on it and she says, not anymore. And I was, spider, spider. Sorry for my American accent. And I was sitting in the classroom thinking a devotee would never do that. It was so shocking to see somebody kill a spider like that. It was really shocking. And no one else in the room reacted. It was just normal. It was one of the times when I thought, wow, devotees are really special people. So we have a culture as devotees of being kind to all living entities, but sometimes we forget that that might include the people that we work with on a regular basis (laughs) or our family members. And hey, you know, you don't know you don't know. Jud Barrett's stepmother and, and nine stepbrothers, they didn't know. They thought they were better than he was. They misjudged. They could have achieved much more than their fruit of Vedic study by serving him and instead they misused him. So we don't know. You know, we don't know who we're who we're associated with. We don't. We don't know how many paramahamsas are sitting here in this room. You know, so why not treat everybody with respect? Okay, I need to end now. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila.